Hey everyone, Kyle here. Welcome back to the Climbing Majority Podcast, where Max and I sit down with living legends, professional athletes, certified guides, and recreational climbers alike to discuss the topics, lessons, stories, and experiences found in the life of a climber. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Have you guys ever imagined what kind of person you'd have to be mentally and physically to climb some of the hardest routes in the world? Maybe you've thought about how that person views themselves and their own accomplishments, or even how they might view the everyday climber. Today, we get to sit down with Jonathan Segrist. But in this conversation, we wanted to move beyond what it's like to climb hard. What are the lessons of a 515 climber, and how can we apply Jonathan's viewpoints and experiences to improve our own lives? In our chat, Jonathan helps us remember that life is about private little victories. He suggests that it's important to be gentle on ourselves and to remember why we started climbing in the first place. We talk about how Jonathan supports the community and what recreational climbers look like through professionals' eyes. We discuss how top climbers use their influence, what key traits make them successful, and finally, how Jonathan plans to use his talents once he's outlived his physical peak. We're good, man. We're hot. We're live. Wicked, man. I'm actually going to take my shoes off because I think I might. Yeah. I might go. Dude. Oh, yeah. I cannot Cross be life. comfortable for my life in that <laughs> position. My hips are like, I'm like the world's worst yogi, I think. Oh, uh, really? Possible. Dude, it's all carrying heavy packs and. Uh, oh, man. Slogging up the mountain. Carrying heavy packs does not make your hips more flexible, it makes them less flexible. <laughs> no, that's what I meant about you. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. I was like, what are you, I was like, <laughs> yeah. what are you talking about? No, 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 like, no. Yeah, that's my body's designed for that. I'm like an ox that can <laughs> carry weight, but then I try and climb hard and it just doesn't work. So. <laughs> you need to embrace the supple leopard, you know? Yeah. I'll, I'll try my spirit animal apparently. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I kind of rewrote a question that we'd like to open up with here, um, which is essentially how do you feel your contributions to climbing benefits recreational climbers such as ourselves? Ooh. Um, how do I feel that my contributions benefit? Well, so I think in a really direct way, I've been able to establish a lot of roots that I would consider like moderates. Mm -hmm. And that term gets thrown around a lot, but I'd love, I'd love to see your definition of moderate. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I've, no, I've actually bolted roots all the way down to five, nine. Nice. Okay. Oh, nice. So awesome. um, when I think of moderates, I think like five, nine, five, 11. Amazing. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's I, our, that's our speed. Some people actually feel that moderate is like a five, seven to five, nine plus thing. I could understand that argument. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess, I guess it, there has to be something there has to be something, something quantifiable for, below moderate, yeah, you know? yeah, but, yeah. but, um, yeah. I can't say that I've done a lot of development in the five, six to five, eight range, mm -hmm. but, uh, so, so that's one like really concrete way that I feel like I've added. Um, I don't know the number of roots offhand, but it's at least dozens like five eleven and under because when I'm going to bolt a new crag or if there's something like a project I'm really interested in, I mean, if I see something that looks beautiful, I'm, psyched to bolt it or it's like to develop that route no matter what the grade is you know and i think that crags are just better if they have great roots for warming up and 
like more than often, you know, it's not like every person I climb with is like a professional or like climbing 515. So a lot of times I want to make, especially a new area, really inviting to the masses. So it makes it much easier for me to find partners. Like something I've found with areas is like, if all I have is like a, you know, 12 D warm up and then like a handful of like mega projects, then like the, the number of people that I'm able to solicit into bringing with me to the crag goes down significantly, you know? Yeah. So when I see easier things that look cool, <laughs> I'm always like to put them up. So it's not even altruistic. It's just like, like pure self-beneficial. <laughs> Part of it is definitely all that. Right, if I bolt like this range of five, six, like I could convince all my friends to come believe me. Yeah, for exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Part of it is definitely that. Yeah. Um, so I would say that's a really concrete way. I would say, um, I've done a lot of like time volunteering over the years. I was on the board of directors of the Southern Nevada Climbers Coalition for six or seven years. Um, so, you know, we would do a lot of stuff in regards to stewardship in the area. So, you know, trail projects, like community events, raising money for the, the LCO, but also just like, you know, bringing people together and, and stuff like that. So that would probably be another way that I would say I'd benefit the overall community. Um, and then, you know, through the years I've taught like a a dizzying number of clinics and, uh, done slideshows and stuff like that, that are engaging the community beyond just professional climbers. And, and more often than not, especially with the clinics, um, those are targeted at people who are climbing under 512. Um, and so I, I actually interact with the um kind of recreational climbing community probably more than people would think that I do mm-hmm. um and I always find it grounding and I know that that might sound weird because I don't want it to sound like there's like you know there's like a a moderate level climber and then everybody else or something like that you know yeah. but but it's always grounding for me because I think you can get a bit lost being a professional and only being around other professionals, only being around people who climb at a certain level um, and who have a certain experience of climbing in the climbing community and stuff like that. So um, every time, like, you know, a great example is like when I go out with a clinic and maybe we go into Red Rocks, let's say, and, you know, we kind of wander up some crag that we've been assigned by the event. And, you know, sometimes I'll arrive there and I'll be like, we're in the sun. It's like blowing wind. This is like the worst crag I've ever been to, you know, like there's 20 of us and there's only three routes and we're only going to top rope. And still at the end of the day, I'll have people say that it's like one of the best days that they've ever had, you know? And for me, I'm just like, okay, damn, I need to like re-remember why I originally fell in love with climbing and just why it's so awesome to just be outside. And, you know, you can get quite salty and quite like, um, lost when you're only going to the absolute best crag and you're only picking the best days and you know what I mean? And, and sometimes it's nice to remember that like, there's a lot of joy to be had in just learning no matter where you are. And, uh, and so, yeah, like what I basically just coming around to what I said about sometimes those days are really grounding and it takes, gives me a new perspective and able to like go back and maybe enjoy some of the days, some of the crags, some of the like friends and stuff that I wasn't able to before. So it's cool. Do you have a, like a particular view towards recreational climbers? Like 
there's definitely a separation there between the social group that you find yourself in mm-hmm. versus, you know, people like Max and I, the Craig, who are like crux, you know, like 5'10", like we're, you know, we're, <laughs> we're, we're on our own speed. Like maybe talk about the difference and how you and people in your circle maybe have a, a view towards people in our shoes and climbers like us. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I think what's really important to understand is like, it's not like there's a blanket derogatory view towards people that are, you know, have one or two days per week to climb um, and, you know, do their best and go out and, you know, maybe their goal is to perform their best, but they're just earlier on in their journey than I am. Or maybe their goal isn't to perform. It's just to like recreate, you know, just fully to be outside. Um, and I would say, yeah, I mean, my view and I think other people's views definitely not derogatory. I think it's just like, I think that there's a, like a baseline mutual respect that we all have for one another. That's quite unique to climbing. I never, and I mean, I'm sure there's examples where like I had a bad day or for some other reason it came up, but I never intrinsically believe that I have any more importance or any more like right to be at a crag or to try something than someone else. You know, I always try my best to be respectful, even if it does happen that I'm warming up on something that someone's projecting or whatever it is. Um, but no, generally speaking, I mean, 99% of all the climbers I meet, no matter what their level is, it's like awesome to share the crag with them. And, and I totally enjoy it. And in fact, actually my roommate who I've lived now with now for like three or four years a lot of times I tell people that my wife and I have a roommate and they're like, oh, is he a climber? And I think people kind of somewhat assume that we would live with someone who's like, you know, some kind of total bone crusher. Um, <laughs> but, but he's a guy that my wife actually met on f- Facebook on like the climbers, like Vegas yeah, climbers Vegas page. Facebook, yeah. And um, he's a great climber. He's really experienced. I mean, that's the thing too is like, his name is Brian. He might not climb 512, but to be honest, like I'd feel way more comfortable climbing in a pair with him than I would with like plenty of 512 climbers and anywhere in Red Rock because he knows the canyon so well and he's really proficient at trad climbing. But I mean, that's his thing is like going to the gym a couple times a night, a week, and then um, like going out and climbing five nines, tens, and elevens. And, and like, you know, again, I think, you know, I see people like him and I don't necessarily think of him as being any less than me. It's just, he's earlier on in his, his, uh, journey towards like whatever his performance goals are than I might be. And like, I was, you know, I was a beginner and I was a moderate climber and I was a 5'11", 5'12". You know, we all went through that. So I think like, if you ever lose, if any professional ever loses touch with the fact that like they were once x y and z then i don't know that's probably gone too far right we we recently interviewed somebody and he he mentioned the phrase um there are he had the mentality we you know the title of the episode was reformed elitism um and so he had this mentality of there are people who climb and then there are climbers Mm. um you know i like that you know you and the people you surround yourself don't have that elitist mentality which is awesome Mm -hmm. but it does exist um you know my question here is kind of like, have you run into it before? Is it something that, you know, professionals are that have to deal with, or is it, you know, something that like people trying to be a professional and trying to prove themselves and have this ego attached to climbing and it's everything for them. That's where that kind of darkness creeps in. Like, do you have a relationship with, you know, meeting people that 
have that kind of elitist mentality and look down on other climbers for underperforming or not meeting certain expectations? I think for the most part, the type of people that I surround myself with don't have that attitude. But I mean, you know, there are always moments. I think that like where I see myself and my closer friend community and, and to be honest, like I don't, it's not like everyone I hang out with and climb with is a professional. Actually, the majority of them are not. Um, they're all very passionate climbers and they're all generally quite good at climbing, especially like in a, in global terms. But that being said, like, you know, probably only a couple, like a handful of people that are my best friends and that I climb with frequently are actually like pro climbers. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think that the ways that I see and myself included, if I'm honest, the ways that I see me and my friends judge people or maybe look down on people has nothing to do with their climbing level. I think it has more to do with their experience level. And what I mean by that is like, I think that there is a certain way to behave in the outdoors and a certain, like, again, mutual respect to have for one another. Um, and so if I'm honest, where I see myself maybe looking down on others, I'm far more likely to throw shade at a couple of teenagers that might climb 513, but have never been to a crag and have got the music and they've got the, the yeah, whole sorry. like scene and they've like, you know, they've like got Red Bulls that are getting tipped over. Oops, sorry. Got Red Bulls getting tipped over and this whole deal. Like to me, they have very little experience, even though on mm -hmm. paper they might be a good climber. That type of person is the type of person where I might even say something to them or throw them shade or kind of like try and, you know, help them correct some of their behaviors um, in a loving way or in like a tough love way. But like the, the you know, middle-aged couple that's out there to climb 510 and is clearly, clearly knows their way around the crag and, and has like been, this isn't their first rodeo, you know? I, I would never have, I personally, I feel like that would never, it would even, even cross my mind to have a thought of like, oh, you guys are climbing 10 C, you guys suck. You know, I'm more like, oh, respect, you know, yeah. like we get it. It's, I'm really, it's, a, I'm grateful to be here with you guys and to share the crag and like, you know, if you need anything, let me know or whatever, vice versa. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it, it's more about like understanding how to behave in the outdoors, mutual respect for these public places that we share and mutual respect for like climbing and the climbing community in general. Those are the things that I might end up intentionally or unintentionally judging someone on, not at all like their climbing level. Cool, man. Yeah. yeah. I think it's just important to, <clears throat> you know, pro climbers can be these mythical things sometimes yeah. and it's hard, you know, you don't get a chance to really be in their shoes and think about like, what do they think of me? Yeah, you know, no, like, it's, it's interesting. So it's, a, it's an interesting yeah. perspective. So I appreciate you sharing. Of course. Yeah. And I, and I can't say that I've ever really thought about answering questions like that. So it's interesting to me too. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, uh, I personally really liked your comment about the uh, backpacks. It's like a personal vendetta I have about people with music in the outdoors. Like my, my girlfriend and I just like every time we're on like some Alpine scramble or hike or like you're in the middle of nowhere, so far away. And there's just somehow always one person with a backpack speaker or something yeah. just like blaring music. And I hate, like, sometimes I try and from their perspective, go into like, okay, like they're like, that's their thing. They're doing that. But then like, just my belief system is just objectively like, we're in nature. 
like trying to enjoy like the silence and the experience, like that should be the default if somebody wants to experience that, you know? Yeah. So I, I have personal little vendetta with that. So that brought some, some happiness to me. Faith to hear oh that. yeah. I totally understand. I mean, there aren't, there aren't a lot of things you can do that really like directly affect the other people and having their experience, but that's definitely one of them. hundred percent. And, yeah. and I mean, you know, there can be times when it's just you and a couple people and you're sure that no one else is around and there's no potential land managers or homeowners that you could bother or whatever. And you decide to play some music. Like for me, that's something that basically never happens. Um, but I'm not saying it's impossible to enjoy music outside, but yeah, I fully agree yeah. with you in that like, you know, the reason that we go, we're not at the gym or at least one of them is yeah. because we want to have a wilderness <laughs> experience. We're not necessarily like looking to like get hyped up and then who gets to choose the music? And then yeah. what if the music sucks? You yeah, know, exactly. and all that yeah. stuff. Our taste but, yeah. of music is very different. Yeah, yeah. Or, or at least if you just offer like a, like a gesture of, Hey, can I play this? Oh or yeah. You, then, then I'm like totally cool. But if you don't even acknowledge then I'm like, okay, it's super inconsiderate. Um, totally. Yeah. I read the vibe too. It's like yeah. your climbers don't play. I don't know. Like AC Slater or rap or something. <laughs> yeah. Classic piano, hard rock. I don't know. Something. Lord. Um, in relation to the original question. So you brought up some, some interesting and good points of kind of your way of giving back to the community. And something I'm curious about is how do you view um, your exceptional performance as an athlete in the community? And how do you view that giving back to the community? Cause that was something we didn't touch on in there. It's like, it was like more like, tangible things that you had done for the community, but I'm, I'm interested in the aspect of your, your literal performance and how do you think that influences, you know, uh, the climbing community as a whole broadly? Man. Um, if I'm honest, I don't, it's really hard for me to see beyond the utterly selfish nature of like performance <laughs> climbing. Like I just don't, like, it's hard for me to really, like, when I climb a new 9B, is that making climbing or the general climbing community better somehow? And it's really hard for me to say yes to that. Um, but I think that, I think that what I try to do is share, I mean, it's part of my job but I also try to share my experience in a way that's relatable to people. Um, and there have been a lot of times when climbers, like of all levels of experience and performance have responded to me sharing about said experience with like, this helped motivate me or this helped inspire me or like I could see like this echoed something that happened to me or a way that I felt about X something. Um, and it somehow helped me. So I think that like when I think about my impact, I also am just thinking about like, what is the purpose of having professional climbers? Um, and I think that so much of it, like the performance is like a foundation that I think is actually really important because generally speaking, performance indicates a certain level of um, time spent 
and obsession. And it's likely that if you perform at a really high level that you understand the pursuit in a way that maybe someone who's only done it a hundred times versus, you know, 10,000 times might not understand as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that performance in a lot of ways gives pro climbers an authority and then what they choose to do with that authority is kind of, in my opinion, in a lot of ways, like where you can go right or where you can go wrong yeah. as, a, as a pro climber. So I think it's like, yeah, maybe the first half, which kind of would seem like a lot, but I think like it has to be predicated because, because essentially like you're, you're commanding a certain audience of people and you're, you're at the helm of a certain, uh, like people are going to listen to what you have to say because of the performance thing. And they're going to follow you because of the performance thing. And I'm not even totally sure why. I mean, why do, why do you guys think? I, I got a great answer for that. I think yeah, it's yeah. like, like an example I could give is I have zero proclivity to basketball. I do yeah. not play basketball. Perfect. I do not even watch basketball, but I idolize Michael Jordan as an Totally. Athlete. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. it's like, like the last dance, that document series, just his, his work ethic and his drive and his motivation. And even some of them can be very negative in a lot of aspects, like when applied to the general population, like yeah. it's insane. You should never do what that person is doing, <laughs> Yeah, but you can, you can watch that person uh, have all these traits in overdrive. That is just like this kind of culmination of performance and excellence. Yeah. And you can kind of see that and aspire to not be exactly that, yeah. but to be the best version of yourself in life, if that yeah. makes sense. So it's like, I'll watch someone like you climb and I'll have a couple laughs and go like, this is just fucking absurd and ridiculous, <laughs> you know, but I'll go like, you know, the more you look into it and try and optimize it's, I haven't achieved the best of my ability in climbing and I don't have to, if I don't want to, but if I want to, there is more that I can eke out and that I can do and optimize in my life to just in the pursuit of excellence for myself yeah. and seeing individuals such as yourself, weird, you know, you know, uh, uh, saying it's like analogous to Michael Jordan. I don't know how you feel about that, but, um, you, you, <laughs> not, you know, not, not quite yeah, apples yeah, to yeah, apples, yeah. right. If we're going to be <laughs> totally saying the same thing here, but you get the broader point, right? Yeah, it's I get inspirational, yeah. it's motivational. And I, th I think in society, we really do need individuals in all domains, whether that's, you know, women's climbing, men's climbing, female sports, male sports, whatever, you know, go, go over, over the, the spectrum there. Um, we need these individuals that we can kind of look up to and aspire to be, or who will motivate us to be the best version of ourselves. Yeah. So I, th I think it's a really important thing, but, but yeah. sorry, sorry to just continue with my rant here, but, um, I did really like the point you made there where as one of those athletes, that's just the first step or the, yeah. the half mark, right? It's like, you know, like, uh, Kyle's like, you know, talked about this before where, uh, you know, if, if you're, if you're like amazing, but then you're like a total dick, you know, and exactly, nobody wants yeah. to work with you. You're not a good role model. You don't sell products. Well, you know, it's like, it's like, well, and like, What's the, like, how do you, how do you bridge those two? You can't, they're kind of irreconcilable. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And there, and there's plenty of people that are incredible athletes, both in climbing and in all kinds of other sports and pursuits, um, who might nail the performance aspect, but there might be too much ego involved. It might feel like 
their motives are misplaced. Like there's other things that can really, at least for me, make it very difficult to actually feel influenced by that person because like it's, it's fine to be really, really good at something. And I think to some degree, it's always admirable no matter, no matter what kind of character you are. But like, yeah, I mean, you, your, your importance and relevancy and like influence can just go so dramatically downhill based on character traits, you know, and, and what you decide to do with, with whatever voice you've been given because of your talent or, you know, whatever it is. So, um, on that note, you had mentioned that it could either go South or positive, right? Mm-hmm. What are some examples of each? So you're given this, this voice, you're given this platform through mm-hmm. your performance, through a brand, through attention, through an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, how can it go South? How can you abuse that power? Like, where does that go wrong? Yeah. I, I think something that I see most often is um, there's like a, like underneath this veil of strength and superiority, um, everyone's vulnerable, right? And, and, and this is kind of what I was trying to say before is I try and share things that are relatable no matter what type of climber you are or um, what level of climber you are. Like what I see that really bums me out is, and this happens mostly, mostly with younger climbers, but it, it can happen with everybody. But A, you can completely, you can be inauthentic to the point where your online persona is entirely different from your in-person persona. And that to me is incredibly empty and vapid because then you're essentially an actor. You're like putting on a show that's not real. And I know people that have done that for years and decades even, you know, but then again, I know people that maybe did that at one point and then came around to be an authentic version of themselves online. I think just so much of what we do and what we say is communicated online that the the type of like integrity that you have online is like critically important nowadays. And then as a piece of that, what I think is really important and and one of the main ways I think that you can go like these things can go well or things can go in my opinion poorly is like if you're like and it's not relatable to anyone if you never show your weakness and you never admit to your vulnerability because like no one on earth is completely without you know no one doesn't have like we all have a dark side or a side of us that no matter how hard we try is is unproductive or negative or you know painful to live through or whatever it is and i think that and i'm not saying that every post should be about this but because <laughs> that can be maybe Just another way of things going wrong misery. yeah yeah <laughs> but but i do feel like like, like you made, you made the point about like watching Michael Jordan. And I agree. I think that series is amazing. And Michael Jordan, his, his whole story is awesome. And I guess that the athletes like in, in sports outside of climbing and in sports that are in, in climbing, 
that I feel the most drawn to are the ones who it's clearly hard. It's clearly fucking hard for them to do what they're doing. And I can see the moments when even they have doubt and then they persevered through that doubt. Like to me, I'm like, that's how it feels for me. So like now I'm seeing someone who like overcame X, Y, and Z and, uh, and, and was willing to share the moments that didn't go well or the vulnerabilities throughout. To me, that's like, that what's, that's what gets me psyched much more so than just, you know, seeing a climber who every time they post, it's about how easy something was or how strong they're feeling or how quick it was or what it's just like, all right, like there's a part of you that you don't, that you're not strong enough to share yet. Mm. And I completely understand. But I also think that like, for me personally, I'm not going to get it. There's nothing I can get from that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, on the bright side. So I find this interesting. You, you, you dedicate yourself to performance. You are this machine. You're dedicated and you're all about climbing and then you know you become a professional and you have this audience and now you have a platform to speak and have an opinion Mm -hmm. when it comes to like political opinions Mm -hmm. or um, taking a stance or taking sides on certain agendas Mm -hmm. do you feel that maybe you you can answer this personally or do you feel like athletes have earned that right do you feel like there's a connection there or do you feel like it's just like this duty that's been put upon you that you have to act on because that's the way it is? Well, I mean, I think that there is in the last four years or so, there's been a, there's definitely been a sense that um, suddenly everyone should comment on every event in the world at all times, no matter how much of a non-expert you are in that realm. Um, I generally disagree with that. I mean, I think that like, why do people value my opinion about climbing? Because I'm an expert. And so I am more than happy to speak to things that I feel I'm an expert in that field. The same way that like my wife's a nutritionist. If someone came out of nowhere and asked her like a question about like, you know, foot health, (laughs) she'd be like, I can't help you there. Right. (laughs) But it's like not, it's because she understands one aspect of the human body. It doesn't mean that she understands them all. So I do think it's totally like that sentiment generally is, is pretty lame. That being said, I also think that athletes shouldn't be just reduced to just their athletic performance. And, uh, what I like is athletes or actors or, you know, whoever it is that have one or two, um, like missions outside of their professional career that they're actually quite passionate about. And maybe they even know something about, and they spend some of their energy on their platform or with their voice to like, you know, forward that take action thing. Yeah. Like for me personally, that one thing would be in regards to the environment. Like I'm, I'm, um, with POW now I'm a member of protect our winters. And so I've done a bunch of work with them in the past. I've, I, my degree is actually in environmental science. So, um, I'm not an expert, but I do know more about the topic than I do a lot of other things. Um, and it has some, it is something that I'm passionate about personally. Uh, like 
I dork out on electric cars. We have solar in our house. I just installed a heat pump water heater. Like those type of things, energy consumption, grid, like those really interest me. And um, I do like to share things in regard to that. But, you know, am I going to pretend to know anything about like some civil war in XYZ country or like pretend to know what it feels like to be this type of identity of a person growing up in this community or that community. Like, you know, there are things that I feel qualified to speak about and other things that I feel it's my role actually to just listen. Hey everyone, please like subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. Word of mouth is the best way to support the show. Yeah, I I think that's a, a really great point. And I think like the underlying thing of what you talked about there is just you can have opinions if you're not an expert, but just have a degree of humility, Totally, you know, and like, and you know, maybe don't do things that are incendiary just to attack other people. Cause those are the people you're trying to, you need them to adopt your idea, you know? Yeah, what I mean? yeah, so if totally. you're incendiary to them, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a lot that makes me think like we have a note at the top of our like show notes here and it says, uh, silence is a sign of wisdom. <laughs> that was actually in relation to just like it's okay to have like pauses and silence yeah, and you know because totally. you always want to fill that gap with something but yeah also strangely uh strangely applied to to this <laughs> yeah totally um you know a little bit earlier before we started talking about that we kind of were talking about uh character traits and this authenticity uh you know like that our avatars online like are you authentically portraying yourself and your vulnerabilities and I'm, I'm wondering for you, uh, you know, what are, you know, and of course, like, you know, remain whatever you feel necessary for being private, but what are some vulnerabilities that you have or some flaws that you feel you have? And as an athlete, do you feel enough? Do you feel satisfied with yourself? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> um, I think that I'll answer your last question first. And I think that as I've grown older, I've become, and this might be forced upon me too, but I've become (laughs) increasingly more satisfied. Uh, That being said, I'm still really driven and I still have goals that are probably unachievable for me right now. I'm still ambitious and all these things. But I think that a part of growing older is like, definitely not verging on complacency but it's it's tending more towards um contentment a because there's less time and mobility and and opportunity to really change i mean not a lot of things can change you know and i don't want to make it sound like like you know i'm not evolving still because all that is definitely true but i think that i guess what i'm trying to say in a simple way is that i was very hard on myself when i was in my Mm -hmm. 20s and i think that that internal voice negative self-talk was actually driving me in in a way that produced good results but wasn't always necessarily healthy for me internally and i think that as i've grown older i've found my inner voice to be a bit softer and um, to be completely honest, there are times when I feel like I have to fight to motivate myself more than I used to. Um, But 
generally speaking, I think I'm finding a good balance and I'm, and I'm more okay with that. So that's what I mean by, by, uh, I think that as I, you know, things, things have evolved a bit in that way. Um, and then remind me what the first part of the question was again. Um, oh, what are some vulnerabilities or some weaknesses exactly. that I feel I have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Um, well, as far as like my physical body, there are clear weaknesses that I have um, that I am never like ashamed to talk about. But just like power has always been really hard for me. Um, since I was pretty young, stamina and, and endurance has been like my gift, if mm-hmm. you will. And then the other things I feel I've had to work really hard on, like strength and power. Um, I think like explosiveness has been really hard. And I've learned actually over this last year um, that limit strength endurance is actually really hard for me. And I, I kind of have a feeling that it might be related to my overall like strength level in general. Like if I'm, if I'm too close to my maximum strength while trying to do strength endurance, I'm basically just getting like hammered by that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, but the beautiful thing about like physical inadequacies is that then you, if you're smart and you're a smart athlete, then you take note of those things and you put extra work into them, you know? Um, and that's been fun. And even like these last two months I've been training really hard and I had a session today. I felt really good. So I feel like I've turned the corner on a few things. I mean, you know, it's not permanent. It'll come and go. Um, but, but that's exciting, you know? And as far as like mentally, I think that, um, I think that's something that I ran into like over this previous year, the second half of 2023 was really hard on me from a performance standpoint and like a personal emotional standpoint. And I think that, that something that's been both like uh, a source, of, a, a source of motivation, but also at other times, a source of like real, like self-loathing is um, I really, I really judge myself based on like, day I just had kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I can have like a really good year or a really good three years, but like, if I don't feel like I'm performing in the moment or if I'm unable to succeed at a goal that I'm, that I'm after in this exact moment, even like something as silly as like going to the crag and like, you know, I know this might sound ridiculous to you guys, but like maybe there's like a 14A or something like that that I'm trying to like do quickly, yeah, right? I don't, I don't and I'm feeling that. like, like I could have had the best training session ever two days before and mm-hmm. like just sent my big project or whatever. But then if I wasn't able to perform like how I feel I should, then I would, then it would like, I would like spiral from that, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but again, I think that there are times when that's helpful and been motivating to me because it's like, it helps me to feel like always driven. Like I don't really take the back seat. Like even if I've had a really good season or I've just sent something really big, I have a lot of peers and I see other people in the climbing community that almost like coast for a season after that. And for me, it's like, you know, the, the feeling of success might last like a, like a week or something. And then immediately it's like, what's next? I have to keep going. I have to use this as mo- I have to use this as like a, as a momentum, as opposed to like, like kind of benefit benefiting from this thing that I did one time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So yeah, I mean, I can. I if, sure if I thought about it hard enough, there's tons of other. You can keep going down. <laughs> the <rabbit hole>. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I I get the point you're making with the 14A, where you know, like all these things are relative, right? They're relative to individual uh, ability and psychology and your history, and there's so many things. Um, I'm I'm wondering for some of these kind of traits we were talking about and these vulnerabilities and you know some aspects of your performance. Um, what kind of like from a nature nurture perspective, like what kind of amount do you accredit to genetics and what amount do you accredit to hard work? You got, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I, well, first of all, I do believe that nature and nurture both play a role in how much attention mentally and physically you are able to give to any craft like a great example is like i'm an only child i grew up in a loving family my dad was a rock climber i didn't really start climbing till i was 18 Mm -hmm. like he took me out as a kid but like climbing five six you know Mm -hmm. i wasn't like on a youth team like age 10 like most kids these days but so i basically started at 18 but you know i had i had I, I was living in Boulder, Colorado, you know, like the, there's external factors that made it much easier. And like, I'll even go so far as to say that like the industry's changed a lot, but like when I left college, I, let's see, that was 2009. So at that time I had, uh, a, I just started with Arcteryx. I had just started with La Sportiva. Um, I had a couple other sponsors at the time, but I wasn't making any money. Mm-hmm. I was probably making like, you know, $1,000 a year or something yeah. like that. So I was working as a root setter and at the Boulder Rock Club and I would basically set roots for three or four months and then they would graciously let me like go and just travel and travel for a little while and then come back and work, et cetera. But all that's just to say that I didn't have a pro contract, so I wasn't actually making any like, I wasn't making a retainer until the middle of 2011. Mm -hmm. So I had like a two year period where my dad helped support me. Like Mm -hmm. I basically said, I'm, I'm going to work part-time as a root setter, but like, I really want to pursue this climbing thing. And he understood and he gave me 500 bucks a month, which is like, that is like, uh, you know, I mean, that's a privilege that, that along with the other aforementioned things that like most people wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. And I do see that a lot. Like it is kind of unfortunate. The majority of really, really good climbers had like the financial and moral support of their families, mm-hmm. you know, which is something that is kind of a bummer. Cause, um, that just indicates to me that there's a big, there's a wealth of climbers out there that, don't have those things and that could be the best or could be enjoying like some dream to be whatever. But you know, if the parents can't afford to take them to the gym three nights a week or whatever, when they're a kid, then it's probably not going to happen for them or it's going to be much harder for them. That's a bit of a tangent. Um, but to answer your original question, um, I think that for every person that I've met, it's some combination of nature versus nurture for myself. Uh, I think that probably the biggest genetic gift that I've been given is just overall health. So I've been able to evade injury really well. Like, like 
I mean, knock on wood, but I've had very, very few. I mean, the worst two injuries I've had in my climbing were both from mountain biking. <laughs> so it's like I've been able to evade injury in in a way that um, I'm has been really helpful for me because I know people that can just like train endlessly and you know never get injured. And for me, certainly in my twenties, that was definitely the case. It's changing a little bit, but even still, given my age, I think I'm able to train with more volume than most people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that's probably my single biggest like genetic, um, piece of like, I guess, j- jump off point or foundation yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Um, but if I'm totally honest and you know, I, I've never had like a geneticist or a scientist tell me this, so this might just be total bullshit, but I, I actually feel like based on people that I see, I feel like genetically like in some ways I'm almost at a disadvantage to a lot of people, professionals that I see. Like I don't have, like I know people that like have never done any hangboarding and can just like one arm hang like a, you know, 10 mil edge. And I'm just like, how the fuck can you do that? You know, there's, there's kids, especially now there's like 16, 18, 20 year old Mm -hmm. kids that I know the amount of training volume is a 10th of what I've put in and they, and the things they can do on a board or on it, you know, it's just insane. So I know that there's genetics involved with that. Um, but again, I think that like at the end of the day, um, genetics are important and it might be like a, a amazing foundation and a good starting point for you. And you might start farther ahead than someone else might, but man, I mean, at least what I've seen in my, with my peers and with, with, with the best climbers in the world is that, uh, I do think that that um, dedication is more important than talent. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that the way you digest failure is also probably more important than like natural born talent. Because there, I, I know so many people that are so much stronger than I am, but like, you know, had a bad season or have performance issues on rock and they just like never overcome it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, whereas I think the absolute best climbers in the world have that genetic starting point and the discipline. I mean, Adam Onder is the perfect example. Like I think genetically he's incredibly talented. And then on top of that, I mean, his work ethic and the level of dedication that he's put into climbing is like 10 times what, I mean, the guy like freaking like mimics roots on the ground, you know, like, like yeah. stuff like that, you know, like he like went to like a ballerina to like help learn flexibility. Wow. Like he, he's yeah, the level crazy. of like, he's the only one who's taking climbing as seriously as like LeBron James takes his basketball. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it shows because of that. Yeah. And I think that it, partly it's the resources that he has because of how talented, I mean, cause even when he was 16, he was insane, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly like there's something going on there. Like he was always really good, but I do think that, you know, he has the discipline and the patience to just like keep at it in a way that a lot of other people, if they were that strong, there'd be like long bouts of complacency. And I think that they wouldn't like be trying constantly the way that he is, you know? Yeah. You had, uh, mentioned the word failure. Um, what's the longest amount of time you've spent projecting a single route? I, I can't remember exactly. I mean, some of my first five fourteens, there was a lot of time. Like years? 
probably like I remember there's a route in the front range called Vogue. It's like 14B, really hard 14B from Tommy Caldwell. This is the industrial wall. And I, I feel like I must have tried that like 60 days, something like that. Um, but to be honest, like the, the route I've tried the most for sure is uh, a project of mine in the Finns in Idaho um, that's called the Fusion Project. And it's basically, um, it's this route that I did called Ma Leche that's like a 14D. There's like a little new section of climbing that's probably like V8 or 9. And then you go directly into like, you basically go directly into the startup algorithm. So it's more or less like 9A, V8, 9A, something like that. Um, so if I think about collectively the time that I spent like trying algorithm, which is a first ascent that I did 12 years ago at the Finns, and then the amount of time I put into doing Maoleche, and then I've had three separate trips trying the connection and I still haven't done it. So I've probably, I mean, I don't know the number of days, but it has to be a hundred at least. And yeah. you, you had, you had mentioned that failure is kind of like how, how we process failure, how we handle failure is yeah. the determining factor between someone like yourself who is you know successful versus someone who might not reach their potential. Yeah. So how do you process failure? What is that like for you? And, and what kind of advice can you pass along to somebody who might be struggling with that? Man, that's, that's a whole episode for sure. But I think generally speaking, um, you have to see failure. Well, a, you have to see failure as a part of the struggle and a part of the game. Like, and, and again, that's what frustrates me about like those climbers who never show that aspect of their climbing online, because it gives people this unrealistic understanding of performance climbing. Like you just send all the time and like every session's fucking rad. And like, you know, you do everything quick and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think that first is just accepting the fact that it's a key element. It's literally like, if you really think about it and you judge success is just like sending and then failure is everything but sending, then it's 99.9% failing, you know? Um, so I think what's important is recognizing that it's a huge piece of the puzzle. Uh, and I think that one of the best ways to metabolize failure is to be critical of how you can improve physically, mentally, or emotionally so that you might be closer to success next time. Might not even mean you're going to succeed, but be closer to success. Um, so I think it's just generally about, I think a lot of people see failure as like kind of, the end of a certain evolution of some sort, but I, I definitely see it as like a piece of evolution instead. Yeah. I see that yeah. as long as you're growing from the process, then failure is not the end of the road. Totally. And I think it's easier said than done. And I think that one of the hardest things about failure is, um, developing a relationship with a certain route or a certain move or a certain, you know, you can take this to any aspect of life that then creates anxiety or intimidation for you to want to try it more. That's the thing that's really, that you really have to, like, that's what I see really frequently, even with really high level climbers is like, like repeat failure, creating a certain anxiety. Mm -hmm. Like imagine if you could 
go back to something that you failed at a million times and have a completely fresh attitude. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to do that. Yeah. And this is the way actually that I find climbing to be the most similar to other sports, like something that I've never played, but I just imagine like golf, right? Like, or tennis or any of these like point based things where, I mean, football is the same or whatever, but It'd be so easy if you if you had like a completely like if you were totally off the rails as far as like your reactions and your emotions, then you'd let like one bad play or one bad like golf event or whatever hole yeah. <laughs> uh, like totally bone you. And it yeah. would literally change the way that your swing is for the rest of the day. But the it's best the golf players and the best tennis players, they can have a really bad uh, game or a really bad hole or whatever it is and start practically fresh on the next attempt. And that's actually an area where I think climbing still has a long way to go because man, if you could come back to a project that intimidates you, that you have a history with and you could have that fresh attitude, like, yeah, holy shit. I mean, that could be like game changer. I feel like. I think that sounds kind of almost in some weird essence, just the secret to life. Totally. Whatever you're doing, you know, it's like how you, you get that stimulus of failure and then how you react to that stimulus. If you can somehow just override that, you know, uh, recoil, anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. and you just power through to just keep going and going like just success through failure, essentially. It's like, I think the craziest part though is like, okay, one failure comes your way and it's like, okay, let me learn and let me go past it. But yeah. it's like hundred days of failing the same exact route over and over again, like talk about, you know, performance anxiety or, you know, you, your failures tainting the future, tainting something you haven't even done yet. Your next performance, it's already hard because you have that next barrier and it just keeps getting bigger until you finally pull it off. Totally. Yeah. And, And I think that like, for me, I'm really grateful and really lucky to have a big wealth of experience. Like there's roots that I've tried a lot, including that one that I haven't done. There's roots that I've tried almost that much and then succeeded. And so like what's benefiting me at this point in my climbing, I might not be able to train as many days during the week or whatever it is that I could in my like mid twenties, but I do have a wealth of experience to know that like, okay, I can come out and I can suck for one day and it's not going to mean, you know, if I was 24 and I, you know, I was like making linear progress on a route and then I had two days of like backpedaling, I would probably like want to kill myself, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not, not actually, but you, point, you know, yeah, I have yeah. the feeling. And now it's like, Oh my God, that happened this time. That happened this time, this time, this time, this time. And it's another drop in the bucket. Yeah, exactly. It's just like another thing that happened. And I, and I actually went back and it was fine and I did it, you know, or I went back and I didn't do it, but then, I did the next hard thing that I tried or whatever, you know, I think ultimately it's about finding a way to move forward and a source of positivity, no matter what you've run into. You can either have a really shit day on the project or in life or whatever it is. And you can end that day by saying, I suck. I hate myself. And I'm like the worst. And you let you beat that attitude, you beat yourself up with that attitude. And then like, what's going to come, what positivity, what 
forward progress is going to come from that. Or you can be like, okay, I sucked today, but that, you know, God, I'm like that undercling was impossible for me today. I'm going to freaking do bicep curls every other day for the next two months, you know? And then two months from now, that move is piss or, you know, that can apply to whatever other thing in life or whatever it is, you know, but just finding a way to like move forward in a way that's positive And yeah. I think that kind of boils down the statement of like happiness is a choice. Yeah. You know, we, yeah. we choose our reality and we choose how we process everything. You can totally. either be miserable from your circumstances or you can try to find a way to look at it and either turn things around and take action or just be view things in a different light. Yeah. Cause you're in the end, it's your reality. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you do succeed after so many failed attempts, how long does that euphoria last? Or do you instantly, you're just like, all right, next. Oh man. This is another thing. Like in my twenties, it would last like fucking 10 20. hours. <laughs> I'd be like, well, I'm going to like get drunk tonight. And then tomorrow when I wake up, I'm going to be hate myself again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean more or less. Um, but now no, it's lasting longer and it, and it just, I think also like, in the last couple of years, I've had a little bit different perspective just because, again, I have such a wealth of experience now that I'm just so grateful for and I draw on it all the time that I actually think it's kind of helped me stay in that like blissful moment longer because like I kind of think of myself as like a red point collector, like traveling the world different, I love different types of climbing, different links, styles, you know, whatever it is. I mean, I mostly sport climb, but I also love track climbing and climbing walls and all this stuff too. And so I, I think about it as like collecting these memories and these experiences. Um, and so I think now with that type of perspective, when certain, when I, when I reach certain accomplishments, it's almost like I can feel that it's one, it's something that's going to be in my collection forever and something that like I'll draw inspiration from for like a really, really long time. Mm -hmm. Like for instance, this last spring I went to Santa Lina and I tried a route called Stoking the Fire, which on paper is a grade that I've climbed several times before. But for me, it was clearly the hardest route I've done. Like that's my, that's the way, that's the sense that I had, like while I was doing it and I did eventually climb it on the last day I was there. And, um, it took a lot of mental and physical and emotional energy from me to succeed on the route. And like, like I, I honestly think I'll think about it like until I die, (laughs) just like think about like how much I feel like I, how much energy I feel like I put in to this project, like my relationship to the route and the story, you know, of feeling just so much uncertainty and so much doubt in like myself and, and then, uh, yeah, like it's so cliche, right. But digging deep in a way that I felt like I, like, to be honest, I kind of almost feel like it was like too much. Like, I think that in retrospect, I probably should have tried, you know, about half the amount of time I did. And then like, changed my objective and trained and come back or whatever, just for like mental, emotional health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I am really proud of like how much I pushed to like make it happen, you know? And, and uh, yeah, like I said, I mean, I think I'll, I'll remember that forever. Um, so, so yeah, some, some of the memories definitely last for like a really long time, but some of them still 
And, and, and that's the beautiful thing too, right? Is there's always a relationship between how much energy you put into something and how much actually value it has to you. And so that's one thing, again, that helps me push through like, you know, day 50, 60, whatever it is on XYZ project is like knowing like this is going to mean so much to me if I can actually do it. You know, if I can ever do this thing one day, it's actually going to have a lot of meaning where like I've done a, like some really, okay. Um, I like I've done some really hard routes that, you know, I did quickly or whatever. And like, those are mostly forgotten if I'm honest. Like it's it, what I remember the most and what has the most value to me is the times, even like the easier routes, but the times when I was like, when it felt like it was everything I had, you know, like that's, that's what's, those are like the best, I think. Yeah. And so, you know, you have an extreme amount of dedication and discipline and focus into this art of climbing. Um, we age as humans. Yeah. You know, where do you see you applying that level of dedication and focus to after maybe it's not as effective being applied to climbing? Yeah, totally. I think that's something I do think about a lot. Um, and, uh, especially, you know, my livelihood coming from in part, not entirely, but a part of my livelihood is dependent on my performance, you know? Um, and I think that I'd like to be involved in the industry in some way. And I, thankfully I've built a relationship with several brands and most notably with Arcteryx over now 16 years. Um, and it feels like a family and it feels like a place that I could have some type of employment beyond my peak performance years, um, which would be great because I love all the people there and um, I love working for the company and just everything that they've given me and the opportunities that they've created for me has been amazing. So it'd be cool to continue to work with them. Um, or, you know, I can imagine working as well. Like I've, I've always kind of wanted to influence climbing media, whether that's print and writing or, um, you know, producing films or producing content somehow for climbing. Um, I think that nowadays that's like, so much of where people experience culture and where the trends are set and where you can really like change people's minds about climbing and, and their experience of climbing and stuff like that. So I think that that could be cool. Um, but I do have a lot of ambition in performance climbing for many seasons to come. And I do feel I'm 38 now and um, if I'm honest, I feel like the last couple of years I've been the strongest I've ever been. Um, it's just that I need to, my approach has changed. You know, I need more. The main thing is I need more rest. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, especially when I look at some people around me that are really influential to me, like BJ Tilden is a great example. He's 42. And just last year he did like climb V14 and climb 515. <laughs> So he's a really good friend of mine and he's somebody that I've climbed with for a really long time. And, and there are other characters like that in, I mean, Dave Graham is another one still climbing at a super high level. Chris Sharma, obviously, um, where I see like some of people maybe slightly ahead of me, like as far as like 
uh, age goes and still really pushing. And uh, I know that every person, everyone, everyone's body is different, but I'm definitely ambitious to, to keep pushing for the foreseeable future. And then I do imagine if my brands and the, the community of climbing is willing to give this to me, I do imagine there being a handful of years too, where my focus would be way more on like long routes and more trad climbing and, you know, potentially taking the level down a bit, but maybe adding like some more elements of adventure or risk or whatever it is. I I think that really interests me too. Um, So yeah, hopefully I've got another, if I want, if I'm going to be really optimistic, I hope I got another 10 years being a pro climber, but we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome man well nice man uh, yeah, I mean thanks. unless you got anything else Max I think that's a great place to I leave it that's a perfect place to leave it man yeah, yeah, we'll, yeah. Leave it, we'll leave it on a good optimistic note you yes know? <laughs> do my best yeah always yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show man really appreciate it and it's, uh, it's been awesome having a conversation with you so thank you yeah Definitely. thanks you guys for hosting and yeah good to do uh, look over the lights of Vegas and enjoy this weird penthouse for a night <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, awesome, man. We're good, right? Cool. Sweet. We're good. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, thank, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, man. It's just a blast chatting with you. Yeah. So, uh, likewise. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Yeah.